This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, writer and academic David Ian Paddy guides us through the strange world of the Unlimited Dream Company by J.G. Ballard. Published in 1979, the novel begins with a man named Blake crashing a plane into the River Thames outside of Ballard's hometown, the suburb of Shepperton. He soon finds he can't leave the suburb, and manifests a series of extraordinary powers. But is his elevation to a kind of messiah reality, or did he really die in the plane crash? J.G. Ballard was born in Shanghai, where his father worked for a textile company. After internment during the war, the Ballard family moved to Britain in 1945. He began writing fiction at university and published his first book, The Wind From Nowhere, in 1961. He went on to publish 18 more novels, including Crash, The Empire of the Sun and High Rise, along with several volumes of short stories, essays and an autobiography, Miracles of Life. He died in 2009. David Ian Paddy is the Albert Upton Endowed Chair in English Language and Literature at Whittier College in California. He specialises in 20th century and contemporary British literature and has written extensively on writers such as J.G. Ballard, Angela Carter, Niall Griffith, Jackie Kay and Jeff Noon. His book, The Empires of J.G. Ballard, An Imaginative Geography, was published in 2015 by Gilthy Press. For all relevant links and for all the books mentioned, check out the description of this episode. Here's Will Carr of the Burgess Foundation, who spoke to David Ian Paddy about J.G. Ballard's The Unlimited Dream Company in July 2022. Well, welcome, David, and thanks so much for joining us on the latest edition of our 99 Novels podcast. And this time we're talking about J.G. Ballard's fantastic novel, The Unlimited Dream Company. Uh, I really enjoyed reading it and I'm looking forward to chatting about it. But David, I, I wanted to start with you and J.G. Ballard. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how you first encountered his work and perhaps how you first encountered this novel. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so I first read him, it would have been the late 1980s, early 1990s, somewhere in there. Personally, that was for me. I'd finished undergraduate in colleges before I started graduate school. I mean, I know that I think I had seen the film of Empire of the Sun, but I don't think I would have recognized, connected, you know, the, the name with the film. I just saw the film. It was a Spielberg production sort of thing. Um, I think maybe somewhat typically for some people of my generation, 
the way I actually really first encountered Ballard was in um, there was this sort of underground post-punkish series um, came out of San Francisco called Research, R-E stroke search, um, put together by V. Vale and Andrea Juno. And they had all these very cool, hip, dark, dangerous, underground kinds of books um, that I was really getting into. And they had, a, a, at least at that point, just one volume with this name. Now, when I saw the name J.G. Ballard, I have to say, it, it, you know, it looked just like a number of the, <laughs> those other sort of names of sort of, I don't know, bourgeois English writers of the mid-century, a P.G. Woodhouse, uh, 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 you know, C.P. Snow, one of those initialed authors. I thought, okay, he's just another, you know, one of those, something like that. And I, w- I couldn't have been more wrong. So I think encountering him through a kind of punk aesthetic, a post-punk, post-industrial aesthetic was my way in. Um, and it was one of those things where, so I think I was reading that volume, which had some short stories, interviews and things like that. And then very quickly, I picked up copies of Crash, um, earlier stories like Terminal Beach. And then, then just this quickly became an obsession. Um, and I think this is a common note for for readers of Ballard. There's kind of an on off switch for people, I think, that for you either kind of fall you either just don't like it and i have plenty of friends who really don't like um Ballard's work um but there's a sense that for some people the light goes on and it, his work is about obsession so in some ways you have to read him obsessively you either read nothing or at all that kind of thing um i'll also at at that time i was working in a in a shopping mall and commuting there by car and that seemed having that experience somehow while reading Ballard's work was somehow perfect because I found myself looking at the shopping mall with very different eyes or driving a car while reading Crash um, really affected it. And, and I sort of bring up this point because I think one of the things that struck me right away, and it's, you know, anyone who reads him a great deal finds whether you read the novels, the stories, the um, interviews or the essays, there's a there's a strong sense of a, of a strong personality pushing through. You f- you sense his presence when you read these things. And the other thing about it is, I think unlike, I mean, I'll just throw out say writers that I love, like Joyce or Burgess, who you read and you love the works, but there's something unique about Ballard that I think carries you outside the fiction. That I think people who again, that light switch goes on for in reading him, there's a feeling that when you go out into the world, you sort of, you see the world again with Ballardian eyes. Um, that I think there's something about his work that shapes, helps you re-see the world. Um, you see things quite differently. I, I'm starting to sound like I belong to a cult, but <laughs> well, no, but that's that's part of the effect, I think, isn't it? It it draws you in. It's um, the world building is is often extreme and unsettling, but um, but it's hard to look away from. At least that was my experience, certainly of novels, uh, you know, like Crash, um, and indeed to an extent the the Unlimited Dream Company, um, which is. Um, is perhaps perhaps slightly different from Ballard's other work, but I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about well about what it's about, what happens in in this particular novel, and what what can we find in it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the, the key note carrying through is, and when I say there's that force of a personality, and when you read him, it is definitely a sense of, and I know Burgess responds to this instantly, which is when you encounter him, what you feel you are face to face with is a writer of, of astonishing imagination. Um, he has an, a tremendous imagination in general, but an amazing way of seeing the world. Um, and then what's interesting, so the, I find what's interesting about Unlimited Dream Company, um, that Burgess chose this. Um, it's a quirky choice for a quirky list. Um, and it's one of those things where, I mean, I remember, I think when I started reading Ballard first, I was reading obsessively again and I was grabbing everything. So I don't remember when I first read specifically Unlimited Dream Company, but you know, it's, it is singular in its way. And I, I know we'll kind of come back to this, but it's certainly, I mean, I would say it's certainly one of the most extreme books on, on Burgess's list. Going back to it again, it's it's one of these books that's quite shocking from word go. I mean, especially in the first two chapters, that you get introduced to your main character who's named Blake, um, and which is one of these things that most readers, critics, quickly pounce on the fact that that doesn't seem accidental, that Blake seems to evoke William Blake as a figure of sort of of sort of a, a eccentric visionary. I think that seems very, very deliberate. When you first get introduced to Blake, he is described as, you know, he's sort of a misfit. I mean, I think Burgess plays it down lightly as sort of like, oh, he's sort of a loner and all this. But he's really pretty much a psychopath from the, from the very beginning. Um, you, what you learn about him from the very start is that he's been booted out of school. And I apologize in advance. There'll probably be some blunt moments in this podcast, but it is Ballard. Um, so Blake is booted out of school quickly. Um, because he's fornicating with the cricket pitch, um, because he'd been reading something in sort of some book about paganism or something like that. Um, he's booted out of medical school um, because he thinks that a corpse is really still alive and he wants to sort of almost move and dance with the thing. He then works at an aviary at London Zoo. He then is a cleaner at London Airport. Um, then eventually he hijacks a Cessna um, because he may, after a possible attempt to maybe kill his girlfriend, it's ambiguous, and then he can't fly, but he steals the Cessna and then flies over Shepperton Studios, crashes into the Thames at Shepperton. And one of the things that strikes people about the book right away is it's ambiguous from the very beginning for the rest of the book whether Blake is in fact alive or dead for the rest of the book. Um, in this way, it's very akin to something like Flann O'Brien's Third Policeman, Golding's Pincher Martin, or Carnival of Souls, or something like that. Um, I've used the term before, necrospective narrative. It's one of these kind of books where it's, it's you know, what does it mean as if, if it's told from the perspective of the dead, looking back in that way. Um, but from that point on, he, it's all about Blake being in Shepperton, which was the suburb that Ballard himself lived in for a big percentage of his life, many, many, many decades. Um, and he becomes a sort of pagan king um, or a returned Arthur figure who has these magical effects on the suburb as, as he um, spreads his semen wherever he goes. And Shepperton becomes like a, 
a tropical zone like the Amazon, or and it's populated with new animals and a vast array of birds. Strange sexual rites um, are and ceremonies are conducted everywhere and with everyone and everything. Um, wounds are healed. Commercial goods are pulled out of the hypermarkets and stocked into pyramids to become new sacred altars. He acts like a Pied Piper to the children, and he wants to teach everyone in the town how to essentially fly without an airplane, just to learn to fly. And either he wants to have everyone fly or to kill them. That's also ambiguous. Um, but by the end, there's a sort of merging of all of nature, of all of life, of all of, of death. And there's a strong echoing here. I think especially in the last paragraph of the book, sounds a little like Joyce's, the last paragraph, Joyce's The Dead. Um, the strong echoes here of Eliot's The Wasteland. Um, and this is where it's quite untypical of the rest of Ballard's work is it's a lot of this has the sort of paganism of it has a strong echo of something like J.G. Fraser's, that other J.G., J.G. Fraser's Golden Bough. Um, but in some ways it is very much about bringing to life a dead suburb, um, a place in which sort of dreams literally, literally become true. One of the impressions I got from it was that it was extremely uplifting and positive. I, I mean, I know you've mentioned all the kind of, you know, slightly disturbing and gory elements, but the energy of the book was such that it's it's driving everything upwards. That was my feeling that uh, everything becomes fertile, everything becomes rejuvenated. And uh, and that's tremendously exciting to read. It it didn't strike me as being particularly representative of Ballard's other work, though. And I, I wondered if you had anything to say about the sort of positivity in the Great, it's a great question, and 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 it's um, to start on that point. It's one of those things that I mean. Let me put it this way: it's not one of the books that critics have written about that much. Um, there's a there's a handful of good essays in some of the books, um, but it's not written about that much. Um, but one of the things is that critics are definitely, definitely deeply divided about how do you think about Blake and therefore the whole book. Because for some early critics, this is an embodiment of pure freedom and liberation of the imagination. Um, and you're right. There, I think my first reading of the book was definitely, oh, this is lighter fare than a lot of other Ballard's books. It's it's brighter, it's rosier. But again, I think the other side of for critics is that, well, he's a kind of, so, I mean, one of my favorite essays is by Mike Holliday, and he really essentially calls him a fascist, is that he's a, becomes a very authoritarian, dictatorial domineering figure who takes over a town and commands everyone against his will. So I think critics are very divided. Um, and, and this might be jumping the gun a bit, but there are, I mean, there are scenes in this book that are again, quite extreme that would make it fairly unpublishable. <laughs> right. Why do you go so far? That's a hundred. Could you say a bit more about that? I mean, that, not the detail of what happens in the scenes particularly, but do you think that it that it it prevents it from being um, from being a, a proper novel, from being a you know a, a viable novel because of the way Ballard has approached his material? Well, and I think what I what I'm specifically getting at is the way in which, I mean, a question I definitely want to come back to is testing of ideas of morality and the morality of fiction. I think that's one of the big things that Ballard's testing out here. But um, there are, I mean, put it bluntly, there are scenes of incest, pedophilia, 
um, coprophilia, things like that. But they're not presented as horror. They're presented as freedom, as liberation. <laughs> um, and so, you know, th- I mean, this, this is very different from saying, you know, that the first book on Burgess's list, Finnegan's Wake, in that way, is also, um, you know, would be unpublishable today. I mean, no author, I don't see a press that would allow that to be published today. And that's, that's, I say that as a lover of Finnegan's Wake, but these are both unpublishable in different ways, I think. Um, But there's a, I mean, I think it's, again, the thing that's remarkable about Ballard is it's, it's testing out the extremity of imagination. Um, And I would, I guess what I would say is I, I, I like the question of, you know, is Unlimited Dream Company representative of Ballard's work? And I, I'm wrestling with this because I think in one way, no, because it seems so singular. It seems so different from the rest of his books. But in another way, and this is to use a very Ballardian phrase, it's as if, you know, Unlimited Dream Company is almost an assembly kit from which you could put together lots of Ballard's other novels. I mean, you have all the kind of common tropes and images he uses. So much that's built on his love of surrealism. A lot of this looks like a Max Ernst painting that's just come to life. You've got stuff that you would see in earlier books like Drowned World or Crystal World of nature reclaiming modernity. Um, You have conceptual flight, a love of fascination with flight and crashing. Um, He had earlier stories where he was fascinated with the idea of what would a 20th century messiah look like? Well, that's here. Ballard has a continuing fascination with suburbia, closed spaces, gated communities, um, people who can't get out of those spaces, the landscapes of something. I mean, the, the zeroing in on a Shepperton because it's near Heathrow and the film studios and the motorway. Um, again, ideas of freedom, ideas of pursuing one's obsessions. So in those ways, or sexual liberation that's wed somehow to Freud's death drive, all of those things, that's definitely in this novel. And that's definitely sounds characteristic of his other books. But I think your point that there's something in the mood read in a certain way that feels less grim than High Rise or Crash or Atrocity Exhibition makes it feel different somehow. Let's uh, let's move on to some of what Burgess has to say about Ballard directly and his uh, recommendation because um, it's it's a short piece as they all are in ninety novels but ninety nine novels but there are a few luminous statements I think um, one of the things Burgess says is that J G Ballard is primarily known as a science fiction writer and then Burgess is quite quick to dismiss this term and insist that Ballard's books and this is him writing stand or fall as novels i wanted to just talk a little bit about science fiction in relation to ballard and i wondered if you thought it was a useful way of thinking about his work again i think it's a terrific question and 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 it's a trick a tricky or tricksy one um because and 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 what i want to come back to is that the ways that i think unlimited dream company is a kind of interesting cusp text but through the 60s and 1970s in interviews again and again Ballard would be very quick to say, absolutely, absolutely, I am a science fiction writer, and science fiction is the only important literature of the 20th century, would be the kind of thing he would say, right? He'd make these grand statements about the genre. Um, and But what's interesting is he would then follow up very quickly by noting, 
how much many science fiction writers, most a lot of science fiction fans, wouldn't recognize him as a science fiction writer and rejected him. He tells funny stories about being horrified going to one of London's first science fiction conventions. He's definitely not a sci-fi con kind of guy. Um, he wrote a review of Star Wars, which was later titled Hobbits in Space. Um, he's fairly quick to dismiss the Star Trek, Star Wars kind of science fiction. Um, and so I think in some ways, I mean, in one of his great early essays, it's a manifesto is called Which Way to Inner Space? And, and I'm summarizing badly, but in a certain way, what he says is, um, oh, I absolutely love science fiction and we need to all write science fiction. But as long as there's no outer space, rocket ships, aliens and robots. So quickly he's crossed off the list what's probably in most people's minds of what the genre means. And I think what he really, I think he's both playing and earnest. And I think what he means is he thinks of science fiction as not a literature about the, what he would say is not the far future, but the near future. It's maybe the best literature to talk about the present. And he says, not outer space, but inner space. How are our inner psychological states being transformed by the, this world that we live in? And I think he's a, fascinated with technology, but he's not fascinated in the way that we can sometimes characterize earlier golden age science fiction as the kind of gee whiz of a new gizmo. He's not simply, hey, they come up with new technology. Isn't that fascinating? They have a lithium crystal drive. Fantastic. I think he's more interested in the way that how does he would use the term invisible technology? How does technology surround us? How does it get internalized? And how does it affect our daily lives, which is something perfectly describes the, the world we live in. So I think he's fascinated with how, I think if you think of earlier people, maybe like an, an Isaac Asimov, you, you get these ideas of the future where in the future, it'll be very clean. Technology will be great. Humans won't change that much, but we'll just be smarter. And I think Ballard wants to show that technology will, will transform our psychology. It will transform our relations with each other. It will transform the fundamental nature of humanity. And what will also happen is that humans, I mean, as someone who was deeply fascinated with Freud, he would say, we are going to bring our unconscious into a clean modernity. We are going to bring all of our perverse mentalities, our unconscious drives, all of our irrationality is going to get embedded into the into um, that. So it's a not clean and it's not a sane future. Um, but I think so. I think he really does mean he's interested in science fiction, um, but it's a very different approach to it. Let's uh, talk a little bit about how Ballard might do some of this then, because I mean you've described how he approaches technology, uh, how he, he thinks about, well, I think Burgess himself puts it this way, that he puts uh, humans in extreme situations to see what happens to them. And, um, uh, you know, that, that is something that animates, animates him and gives a lot of energy to his, to his writing. But the writing itself, one of the things Burgess says about it is that Ballard's language exists less in his work to record the actual than to liberate the imagination. And I wondered what you thought about that statement. I mean, on the face of it, it's, it's 
fairly, fairly sort of factual. He's saying that Burgess is, uh, sorry, Burgess is saying that Ballard is writing some sort of speculative fiction. But I wondered uh, what you made of um, precisely what he says about Ballard's language. What I think is interesting about that as a statement is that it, it's, I think it's true. I, I'll, I'll do a little quibbling because I think in some ways it's, that resonates more true for Burgess probably than it does for Ballard. Um, I mean, let's also say that, you know, when Burgess says this is probably Ballard's best novel, there's not many critics that would probably agree with that. I have moments when I could, would agree with it, but it's, again, I think it's sort of singular. I think there's also a way in which the emphasis on language in that statement is definitely very Burgess. Um, and the reason I'm just going to quibble is that someone like Ballard was very quick constantly to say things like, um, I'm not a literary man. Um, and that he identified far more with painters, um, that he was a failed painter. And so I think his, he thought of himself as thinking much more in terms of the visual um, where I think, you know, Burgess is obviously so much more about the oral, about the audio in those ways. But yeah, I think there is a yes to what uh, Burgess is saying there. The idea of definitely Ballard is resisting, resisting bourgeois realism. Um, he definitely believes in the idea of imagination over recording. And I think Unlimited Dream Company is a great example of this. I mean, this is a novel that is really testing the idea of, of sort of pure, pure imagination. Um, and maybe a, a good way to think about this is when, when Ballard was writing Unlimited Dream Company, he, in some interviews, he says, you know, he was finding himself in, a, in an odd period. I think he was struggling writing a little bit. He said he had some difficulty writing the novel. Um, and essentially two main periods have been over. So when he first emerged on the scene in the 1960s, he had these natural disaster novels, right, where essentially modernity is taken over by, um, you know, cl climate change novels, really, um, major ways in which tides shift or um, drought takes over. And so he wrote these very intense natural disaster novels. And then in the 70s, he writes these kind of concrete urban disaster novels in which our lives really examining ways in which what does it mean to live in a concrete landscape? Um, what does it mean to live in a landscape dominated by the media? Um, and I think he decided by the time, by the late 70s, that he sort of felt like that period was done. And he really, he says, you know, there's a strange period he writes this collection called Low Flying Aircraft, Myths of the Near Future, Unlimited Dream Company, a novel called Hello America. And he called this a period, and this is all before Empire of the Sun. And this was a period where he was testing out the idea of essentially purely imaginative work. And so, but at the same time, and this can sound like a contradiction or a paradox, what you get from Ballard's statements about writing is he will say, Writing should, good writing is, is this thing that's pushing the imagination. And what you want from a writer is some sense of like intense vision, intense imagination. But he also clearly distrusts something that looks too much like, I mean, he, he dismisses a lot of science fiction that looks like fantasy, that has no connection to real life. So at the other point, he says that science fiction or imaginative fiction should be a tool 
to analyze the present world. So it may not be reportage, but it definitely is using the imagination not to escape, but using the imagination as a keener eye to really see the present. I mean, I always think of um, the science fiction writer William Gibson, um, who's definitely overtly influenced by Ballard, and who said at one point, he thought, I don't know how you really write science fiction anymore. I don't know how long you can project the future anymore. But Gibson says, you know, humans only can take in, a, you know, the brains only take in a small amount of the information um, that's surrounding them. And so Gibson says that the job of the science fiction writer isn't to show us the future, but to show us 5% more of the present, which I think is a great way of describing what Ballard is up to as well. Well, I wonder if if the the key to Burgess's statement then is the idea of liberation of uh, of the imagination. You know, if if the idea is that the imagination can, yes, as you put it, as you say, unlock, um, you know, all of the rest of experience that uh, that is presently denied to us. Perhaps that's one of the things that that Bella's trying to get at. Um, Burgess finishes his recommendation by describing this novel as an apocalyptic book, but he also says it's very much a novel. I, I was struck by the word apocalyptic, and I, w- I wondered if you had anything to say about that. I mean, obviously, there's the character of Blake, um, who whose name brings to mind apocalyptic books in all sorts of ways. But um, I, I wondered if if perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about your, your thoughts about apocalyptic fiction in relation to Unlimited Dream Company. Terrific. Yeah. And I, that is the word I latch on to. And it's one of the first words in Ballard's most experimental work, Atrocity Exhibition. And, you know, the word dystopia gets attached to Ballard a great deal, which he was quick to dismiss. And he would sometimes say, even in his bleakest visions, no, he was being quite optimistic about where things were going. Um, so, you know, and disaster gets tossed around a lot for that. I think that's fair enough as well. But I actually do think apocalyptic is a great word. And I think especially for something like Unlimited Dream Company, um, which, by the way, I'm digressing a bit. I'm going to come back to this question. But I would say Unlimited Dream Company, I don't think necessarily is science fiction. It probably is better to describe it as apocalyptic fiction. Unlimited Dream Company, I'm pushing too hard here, but I would say it's closer to fantasy. It's almost closer to folk horror. I mean, I would almost put it closer to like Wicker Man or Blood on Satan's Claw than to anything like, say, Asimov's Foundation, right? Um, But in that way, I think that kind of almost pagan apocalyptic thing that's going on here. But I would say why I think apocalypse is a good word is very much in the way that Ballard's approaching it is not just destruction, not just watching our world in collapse and in disarray and detritus, but the idea of, you know, that apocalypse meaning destruction, but also revelation um, to open up the world, to see things as they really are. Um, in, in, a, in a rare essay, Ballard wrote about, uh, again, a kind of almost William Blakeish figure of the 20th century, the painter Stanley Spencer. Um, who's perhaps most famous, if he's known at all, by a painting called The Resurrection Cookham, which is at the, at the London Tate. Um, and it's a, it's a painting which I just feel seems to me a strong inspiration for Unlimited Dream Company. There's Cookham, there's, you know, here's this London suburb, and it's, it's all these people crawling out of the grave. So again, what's dead, what's alive, but there's resurrection and there's people who are naked, people having sex and this sort of town that's become orgiistic and confusing the line between life and death. Um, But I think 
that the fact that Unlimited Dream Company is about resurrection of the dead is about a messiah figure. Um, the flight, flight is itself as a kind of escape from death. Um, and one of the things I have to use here is perhaps one of the most famous lines in the novel. Um, and, and Ballard uses it again and again in different ways. And curiously enough, he has a priest, Father Wingate, say this line in the novel. For all we know, vices in this world may be metaphors for virtues in the next. And that's an interesting and complicated idea. It's mesmerizing. It's such a Ballardian line that what if the vices in this world are, and again, not just the virtues of the next, like what if we're wrong? It's kind of a very Gnostic thing, right? What if you're wrong about your idea of good and bad? What, what if what you think is corrupt and perverse is actually good, right? Ballard's testing that idea. But it's also the idea that it's metaphors for virtues in the next, like, which I think is what, and maybe this is what I think is important here is, and I think maybe I'm, I could be wrong about this, but it seems to me one of the things that I think Burgess is latching onto and why he kind of goes for this novel is that, and I know in the preface to 99 novels, Burgess makes these statements about, you know, how much a novel has to be moral, but he doesn't mean, he says, absolutely, writers shouldn't preach at us. Well, let's see if I can find the line here where he says, rather a novel will question convention and suggest to us that the making of moral judgments is difficult. This can be called a higher morale, the higher morality. And I think that applies really well to Unlimited Dream Company because I think in a novel like this, as he had done in things like Crash, Ballard is really pushing hard about the idea of saying, so um, is there anything immoral about the imagination? Um, which going back to that unpublishable thought, right? Can you write anything? Um, which I, you know, I mean, to go to the obvious with something like Burgess, you know, Alex under the Ludovico technique and the idea that not only is he going to be kind of criminalized for actions, but just even imagining socially unacceptable behavior, right? And I think in something like the Unlimited Dream Company, in Crash and Atrocity Exhibition, Ballard is really pushing the boat out in those ways to say, you know, is there anything that you can imagine that should be banned, should be censored, that should be seen as, no, that's going too far? Um, so it's almost a kind of Nietzschean beyond good and evil, like how, or definitely post-Freudian in that way, of like, how far can you go? Um, and somehow, if, if that makes some sense, I think that to me is tied to Ballard's particular take of the apocalyptic, which is almost carnivalesque, right? Turn everything upside down. The, you know, that kind of, if the world's ending, what do values mean? What does freedom look like? How far can you push things? Well, he certainly pushes them pretty far in this in this novel. But as we were talking about at the beginning, not to the extent that you're um, you're necessarily put off. You know, it can it can draw you along in a way in which perhaps some of his other books don't don't quite do. Um, one of the other things I wanted to mention, though, uh, was the uh, was to try and consider the relationship between Burgess and Ballard's work. Um, I mean, Burgess wrote about Ballard; they corresponded, and he. Uh, Burgess provided the introduction to uh, Ballard's collection of short stories, so he clearly was um, was very much aware of it. But I wondered if you felt that there was any connections between 
between their writing? Do they deal in similar themes, perhaps? And and how does their approach to this kind of speculative fiction compare? Definitely, yeah. And I think it's absolutely, and including in in the, <laughs> I'm going to do a plug for you, right? In the in the Irwell edition of um, of, of Puma. Um, includes some of these, you know, Burgess's writings on science fiction and um, on, and specifically that preface to, to the Ballard short story collection. I mean, there's clearly the two, I mean, Ballard mentions that the two of them never met in person, but they clearly both deeply respected each other. I think they both recognized both as great imaginative writers. Um, and I think they're, I think when you think of what's what's what are what are Burgess's most science fictiony things, we've got the kind of dystopian uh, Clockwork Orange, Wanting Seed. Um, you've got a short story like The Muse. You've kind of got Puma or End of the World News. It seems clear, though, at least from Burgess's statements. Burgess, I mean, he. Let me back up and say that Ballard definitely says he admires Burgess, especially looking at the reviews and all this, how Catholic his tastes are, like how wide, like very open minded, he says. Right. Um, but at the same time, I think you do sense some of the judgment coming from Burgess that, uh, you know, how good is most of this stuff? So they they both have definitely a judgment about probably where most science fiction goes. And I think when Burgess makes that statement about Unlimited Dream Company, you get some of that kind of standard distinction of, well, you could call it science fiction, but we shouldn't because really it's good literature, right? It's like as if science fiction can't be good, right? And I think Billard would go back and forth uh, on that kind of thing. Um, I think, you know, they probably depict the collapse of moral civilization in quite different ways. I mean, I think what we were, given what we were just talking about, I think you know, when I read something like Clockwork Orange or The Wanting Seed, or again, even End of the World News, Burgess's sort of dystopian or end of the world scenarios, this, he's doing something very different, I think, with the end of civilization, whereas you almost feel like, and again, almost in the extreme fantasy of Unlimited Dream Company, a sense of, this looks fun. Let's see where this goes, right? Less attachment to that previous civilization. Um one of the things, when I think of like, also, you know, when I look through Ballard's statements on Burgess, what's interesting to me um, is that there's really two things he goes to again and again when in his admiration for Burgess. And one is, again, I think this sense of imaginative fiction. So he would pair Burgess with someone like William S. Burroughs. Um Ballard's main inspirations were things like surrealism and futurism and pop art. Um, and I think the idea of anybody who was breaking away from kind of traditional middle-class realism, Ballard celebrated. Similarly, most of his comments, it's really interesting. I can't even tell how much Ballard read of Burgess, but he, what he seemed to um, capture a number of times is a sense of he admired Burgess as someone who's international, who's cosmopolitan. And I think a lot of this has to do with Ballard was born in, in Shanghai. You know, his formative experiences are there in China, in the international se settlement. He moves to England when he's 16 or so and really never identifies with English and seems to really like things that kind of criticize Englishness. 
and I think he really he always pairs Burgess with people like um, Graham Greene, Jarrell, and and people like this. People who are out there who are English but who have moved out into the world. Um, the way in which I think Ballard is not like Burgess is um, there's a great line in in one of Ballard's essays where he says. James Joyce's Ulysses had an immense influence on me, almost entirely for the bad. <laughs> right. I'm going to say the same of Burgess in some ways, but yes, <laughs> right. Point, yeah. Right. Is it a little over determining in Burgess's work? Right. Yeah. Um, but I think, and, and he again, Ballard's really good at these kind of shock statements. But what he when he qualifies it, he clearly thinks Joyce was a great writer. But what he means is when he started as a young writer trying to copy Joyce, maybe in something like some of Burgess's earlier stuff, right, is he realized that that's not my path. I shouldn't go down that path. And the other way I think that is, I find interesting that makes uh, Blard quite different from Burgess is, is music. I mean, obviously music defines so much of Burgess, of, you know, his desire to be a musician, his composition, the role of music in his work. Um, but Ballard always said he had a tin ear. Um, he really didn't, couldn't hear music much at all. I think when he was on Desert Island Discs, he picked things like Teddy Bear's Picnic, you know? <laughs> um, well, I, mean, I find that very interesting, especially given what you were saying about Ballard's visual imagination earlier, because, uh, I mean, Burgess does describe things in his novels and so on, but I think he he would have admitted himself that he didn't, he did not have a strong visual sense. He was colorblind. His writing about visual art is extremely limited. It wasn't part of the way in which he, he saw the world. So perhaps that's a useful distinction we can draw between them, maybe. I think so, yeah. And it's, it's that's interesting. And it's one of those things where, um, I mean, at the same point, you feel both the writers have, you know, very strong, a very strong prose that's, I mean, maybe I don't, this word gets tossed around and connected to both of them in some ways and often is an insult, but I don't think it is, which is mannerist. Um, I mean, there's a way in which once you've encountered both writers, you know, Blard when you're reading him. I mean, there's something about, not just about the images he's doing, but there's a, there are Ballardian sentences. You recognize them in the same way, I think for Burgess, right? I mean, you pick up something like MF um, or Napoleon Symphony. It's like, who else would write those? <laughs> um, there's something about the style of it. But yeah, again, I think, but at the same time, I would say, even though Ballard, again, the Tinier thing is that, ironically, he he's had probably a bigger influence almost on popular music than writers in some ways. I mean, the number of post-punk and contemporary indie bands that have named songs or their bands after Ballard titles is interesting. Um, and, and I think Ballard responded to it in a way that clearly Burgess did not have a high opinion of, of rock music in general. Right. Um, but I would say in those ways, you don't get, you know, Ballard's prose is, is not again, back to the, the Joycean music thing. It's not logoreic, loquacious, extravagant. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> um, Let's, uh, well, maybe as we get, get towards the end, but I, I wonder what you thought Ballard's reputation is today. It's, uh, it's more than 40 years since The Unlimited Dream Company was published and some years since Ballard himself passed away. 
Um, I, yeah, I wondered if you could say a little bit about his reputation and, and perhaps talk about what Ballard might have to offer to people coming to him for the first time. You know, it's interesting. I mean, on one hand, I would say I think he seems to sit pretty comfortably in the canon, whatever that means today. I mean, I think he's taught much more often um, in, I think he's on curricula more and more and more. I mean, he's definitely deeply beloved in France and Italy and places like that. I mean, I think one way to say his reputation has clearly been established is, you know, Ballardian is a term in the Collins English Dictionary. Um, and people, you know, his, his influence, you see psychologists use him. I think you see sociologists who are interested in him. Again, I said his influence has been big on music, um, TV, radio, things like that. I mean, and I do not mean this as an insult. I want this to be heard in this way. You watch a program like Black Mirror. I mean, the entire thing to me, and I think Brooke has been really honest about this. I feel all of Black Mirror is a long homage to Ballard's work. Um, You have whole sites out there that are devoted to people posting pictures of, you know, ruin porn of, of, of abandoned shopping malls with, uh, greenery taking over them and always posted as see like how Ballardian this is right um, but in some ways I would say that doesn't go far enough um, I mean in some ways I would say going back to I think what I was saying at the very beginning if you read him devotedly enough god that sounds awful and that sounds cult-like um, but if you read obsessively enough if you read enough of him you you go out into the world and you see how can you not see most of the world around us is Ballardian in some ways. I mean, TikTok to me is utterly Ballardian. The idea of Ballard in the 19, mid-1970s is already predicting the idea that in the future, everyone will have a home film studio and will devote their lives to watching themselves on their own little home movies. <laughs> well, what's YouTube? What's, what's TikTok, right? Um, or to be a le- little more horrendous um you know the 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 figures like boris or the january 6th things and the figures of trump and you know all that all of that is this kind of stuff that Ballard talked about i mean you see ways he when i when i'm around people who watch phenomenon like that and go i don't know how this could have happened i always just want to say you should have been reading J.C. Ballard. <laughs> he would have explained this to you, right? And I would say today, I mean, especially having gone through COVID and lockdown, living on on Zoom and things like this, um, Ballard's story from 1977, the intensive care unit is required reading for everyone right now. I see. So well, you think the contemporary world might be rather more Ballardian than the 70s, say? I mean, you know, they, his fiction has a kind of prophetic quality. That uh, that perhaps is coming into view now. I I believe so. I think abs- absolutely. Um, I think there's a way in which, again, we are not living in the kind of science fiction predicted in the 1950s. In certain ways, you know, like when you listen to people say things like, "Oh, what's the cliche?" I was like, "Well, you know, where's my hoverboard? Yeah. Where <laughs> are thought, the sliding doors, the uniforms? Yes, that kind of thing." Yeah, exactly. Right, and it's like, well. What are you carrying around in your phone, in your pocket all the time, right? I mean, the idea of walking around and seeing everyone holding little screens that we're staring into to get feedback loops on. And again, not just because it's technology, but because 
you know, that we have psychologists studying are phones and screens creating a new kind of heroin addiction. Um, that's completely in his wheelhouse. That to me, the idea of we would develop a psychological dependency on technologies that then transform our psychology. I mean, I, I often say to my students, I, I lived a good portion of my life without a computer or without a cell phone. But now I find it very hard to imagine a world in which I can't quickly grab my phone and do a Google search. Like, I can't imagine that when I was a kid, I couldn't do that. Like, that didn't seem like that world ever existed. And I think that's how much they rewired our consciousness. And that, then again, the sort of horrendous things that people also do on YouTube, etc., is also the kind of stuff that Ballard would say. But it isn't just the clean technology. It's that we bring all the irrational, latent qualities of our minds. We have ex So he says early in, in Atrocity Exhibition, what we are doing in the 20th century is we, exter we are externalizing our nervous system so that all of those neuroses that were built into us have now been built. We're living in a world built by humans. Um, we live in a world like what effect are these concrete buildings? What is it? It's why he's obsessed with car parks. You know, they're built by humans with their unconscious. What effect are they having on? How does the human-built environment and human-built technologies, how are they transforming how we think and how we are human? Well, if we're living in a Ballardian world, then we should certainly be reading a bit more J.G. Ballard. Thanks for that, David. That's a really powerful uh, set of points, really. It's a recommendation of Ballard's novel, this particular one, but also the rest of his work. Um, before we finish, um, when we're asking everybody this, Burgess only picks 99 of his favourite novels in his book. And I wanted to ask, if you could add a hundredth novel to his list, what would it be? Oh, you know, I have to say the joy of going back and listening to a number of the other podcasts is 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 the audible squirm. Is <laughs> 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 listening to to the people you're interviewing. Oh. That's a bad question. Well, okay. Uh, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> not a bad. It's a great question. Okay. Um, but you can hear the like, oh, it's it's a thing I I re I, I I require everyone do. I think this is a good it's sort of like being required at some point to say, okay, come down to it. What are your five favorite albums? Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. You gotta do it. You have to do it. Yeah, it's that kind of thing. No, I, so I like it. I like, again, given everything we've been talking about, I like listening to people squirm. I've read enough Ballard. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good quality. Um, but you can see it's a good, it's a good challenge. And it, I think it throws back to, gosh, again, the, the quirkiness of Burgess's list of the sense of it's so his list, um, you know? So, when I thought about the question, I thought, okay, oh, I had to quickly remind myself, has to be English, because I thought, oh, of all these great novels that are Hungarian and Czech and Japanese, like, I'd, okay, I can't do that. And then the next thing I started doing was going to things that have come out since 1984, and I thought, oh, okay, you've got great people like, and, and maybe in the back of my mind, people who've been influenced by Ballard, and I kept thinking like a China Mievel, a Tom McCarthy Deborah Levy, Zadie Smith, Evie Wilde, all these are oh, these are great writers. And in the end, I decided, no, 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 I should probably stick within the 1939 to 1984 constraint. Okay. Um, and I had an option. And I think it just came slightly outside the time frame. So I decided what I'm going to go for is kind of more in the spirit of the thing. And this is just going to reinforce the whole thing that I've just, despite all the qualifications, that I'm in a cult. 
um, I decided to go for what might Ballard have chosen? And it is a book I love, but I think it's one he definitely would have chosen, a book that he heaped praise on, which is Anna Cavan's Ice, um, which came out in 1967. And I wanted to choose it in this way because I think it fits the spirit of this. It's, um, it is a novel that when you read the description of it, goodness, it sounds like one of Ballard's 1960s novels. Um, it's a novel, it's very much like Crystal World. It's a novel that's slowly frozen over and, taking, and taken over. But it's, again, another one of these books that's a, an act of supreme imagination. Um, Cavan's not her real name. She went through many different names. She lived in, she was... Um, put in mental hospitals for big portions of her life. She had heroin addiction and there's a way in which you read ice. Is it really about heroin addiction? So again, it's a novel about obsession, a, a novel about a strange way of reseeing the world. Um, again, it's very apocalyptic. So it's a great novel. Um, I might've, my other choice would have been maybe something like Angela Carter's Knights of the Circus, but I'll, I'll stick with Anna Kavan. Um, with ice because again in the spirit of powerful challenging imaginative fiction thank you david that's a fantastic choice and uh yeah it's great to hear how you got there as well um listen i, I really enjoyed our conversation about the unlimited dream company thanks so much for taking part in the podcast thank you so much will and and it was great to chat with you and graham i know you're behind the scenes there thank you both thanks for everything you're doing in the burgess foundation and the Irwell editions and all that great to be part of this um uh, thank you so very much you've been listening to 99 novels a podcast by the international anthony burgess foundation David Ian Paddy's book, The Empires of J.G. Ballard, An Imaginary Geography, is available now from Gilfie Press. The theme music is Anthony Burgess's Concerto for Flute, Strings and Piano in D minor, and is performed by No Dice Collective. They can be found online at nodicecollective.com. For more information about Anthony Burgess and the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.